0: Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Miziko. Today's topic covers the mysterious disappearance of a college girl. The suspense is nauseating as the police unravel clue after clue until the trail runs cold. Before we start the show, Korean True Crime now has a Patreon open that is new. And a special shout out to our very first patron of the show, Vix Mac. Your support and encouragement mean the world to me. I've actually been really overwhelmed by the support that I've received on all of the Korean True Crime social medias to anyone who had kind words to say, Gamsam 감사합니다. I really appreciate you. If you'd like to join Korean True Crime's Patreon, supporters gain access to ad-free, early access episodes, weekly true crime vocabulary, exclusive access to vote on polls about future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. The Patreon is new and there are no set tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything and bonus content is coming soon. If you can't financially support the show, that's alright. Liking, following, subscribing, and reviewing the show wherever you listen is a great way to leave me feedback. If you'd like to see media related to the case, a video podcast is uploaded to Korean True Crime's YouTube, as well as in the show notes on Patreon. With that, let's get started. What was that? All names used in today's episode are pseudonyms, selected from the common names in South Korea at the time of the victim's birth. Victim names are generally not released in South Korea to give the family privacy. Perpetrator names are not released until after they are found guilty. In this instance, the victim's name was leaked by classmates. But to protect the family's privacy and respect the victim, I will not be using her real name. Our case begins in 2004 in Hwasong, a district within Gyeonggi-do. Gyeonggi-do is the most populated province in South Korea. It includes Seoul and the areas surrounding Seoul. A lot of the cases that I cover in Korea occur in Gyeonggi-do just because of the massive population. Of the 51 million people that live in South Korea, half of them live in Gyeonggi-do. 10 million of those people live just in Seoul alone. If you've never visited South Korea, Seoul is just a little bit smaller than New York City but has double the population density. There are going to be a lot of locations mentioned in today's episode, and if you're like me and have a tough time visualizing maps in your head, this may be rough, so I'll do my best to describe locations in relation to one another. On the morning of October 27, 2004, a 20-year-old college student named Unji was leaving her Chinese class after taking a midterm at Gyeonggi University. She was a sophomore in college studying tourism and she had just returned from studying abroad in China for six months. Unji was the eldest daughter with two younger brothers that she helped care for. When she was in high school, she had been her class's student president, but she always preferred spending time with her little brothers and her family over club activities. Her friends remembered her as, quote, a student that was so smart it made us all look bad. Eunji spent some time on campus before heading home to meet up with her two little brothers and eat a late lunch at around 3 p.m. They decided to get tteokbokki and gimbap and eat at home. If you're curious about these foods, you can check out a post on my Patreon. I'll even include my favorite kinds. The siblings ate their lunch together and hung out until around 6 p.m., when Eunji had to leave to go to her swimming lessons that were about an hour away by bus. She took a bag with her for her towel, swimming suit, cap, and cosmetics. She rode the bus to the Huasong Welfare Center, which hosted her swimming classes. When she got there, it was right before 7 p.m. It's October, so it's getting dark already, so she decided to call her mom and ask, "'Can you pick me up from swimming lessons?' Her mother normally would pick her up from the swimming lessons, but today she was exceptionally busy with errands. Her mom responded, "'No, I'm sorry. I can't pick you up today. I'm too busy.'" That was the last thing her mother said, and they ended the call. Eunji went to her classes, and when they ended, it was around 7.50 p.m. She took a shower at the facility, got dry, packed up her things, and left. She left the welfare center at around 8.15 p.m. and headed towards the bus stop. She waited a while, but got on bus number 34 headed towards her house. After getting on, she sat on the first available seat in the front, which was a single seat between a man in front of her and a man behind her. Eunji called her little brother and told him, "'I'll be home soon.'" She also texted her mom a similar message, but also said, if it's too late, you can go home together, referring to her little brother. I couldn't find an explanation for where she was meeting her mom and little brother, but either way, she told them she was running late, presumably because she took a shower. Her father shared to the media that she always followed her own routine and texted her family when she left the swimming center and when she was getting off the bus at the stop near their home which makes it even more strange because she gets off the bus at the next stop 10 minutes later, at a stop near the University of Suan in the Wari Industrial Complex. Her ride home is 40 minutes long from the swimming center. She's nowhere near her stop. She was actually still more than two kilometers away from her house, but the bus took the long way around that made the trip last longer. From what can be seen on the bus's CCTV footage, you can see her stand to get off the bus with a few other people, including the man who is sitting directly behind her. She gets off at 8.35pm. The camera only shows the front doors and the first three rows of the bus. She was sitting in the third row. So when she gets off the bus, you can see her through the windows and you can see she heads to the left, back into the view of the camera and the man who also got off is a few paces behind her. But they're not walking as if they're together. They do walk in the same direction out of the scope of the camera as the bus continues its route. This bus stop is just outside of the University of Suwon. It's a really nice downtown area for students to hang out. Unji had been here before with her friends and with her family, so she knew the area fairly well. This particular stop has an unofficial area for taxis that linger waiting for customers, so while we can't know what Unji was thinking, Thinking she may have decided to get a taxi to avoid the cold or to make her trip faster. If she had gotten off the bus here, somewhere she knew there were taxis, it would have been a 5-10 to 10 minute taxi ride to her house, which would make the trip considerably shorter. She could have done this to potentially get home on time since she had texted her mother that she was late to something. Unfortunately, we won't really know why Eunji got off the bus early. She typically would leave the swimming center 8pm and get home a little bit before 9pm. Eunji's mom had called her phone at 9.05pm when she hadn't heard from her. It isn't too long after when she's normally home, but she wasn't responding to texts her mom had sent her. When she called Eunji, the call went straight to voicemail, either because the phone was dead or the phone was turned off. Her mother assumed that her phone had died. Her family was a little bit annoyed, but also pretty worried because she wouldn't go somewhere without telling them. Her mom waited two hours and at 11 p.m., she decided it was time to contact the police. On the call to the police, Unji's mom said, my daughter, who went to swimming classes at 7 p.m., hasn't come back yet. She told us at 8.25 that she was coming home and at 9.05, I called her myself, but the phone says the power is off. Please help us find my daughter. This isn't like her. An officer arrived to their house and they filed a missing persons report. The officer and his partner searched the neighborhood and the entire walk to the bus stop for her, but they ended up concluding their search a few hours later at 3 p.m. when they couldn't find her. They reassured the family that she's 20 years old and it's likely that she had gone out with friends and her phone died or that she went to a friend's house and fell asleep. She's 20 years old and, you know, she'd only been missing a few hours. The police get calls like this all the time from worried parents, but it's often just rebellious kids. They told the family to call them in the morning if they had heard from her or if she showed up, but that they'd continue searching for her the next day. Of course, Eunji's parents couldn't sleep knowing that she was missing. They spent all night searching for her, contacting friends and teachers. Nobody had seen her after she left the swimming center. At this point, her parents don't even know that she got off the bus early, so they had no clue where she was. After an exhausting evening, the next morning, October 28, 2004, at 7.30 a.m., Unji's parents continued to call her phone over and over until, finally, someone answered. Her dad frantically called out on the phone, Unji Eunji, where are you? A man on the other line said, I'm a local newspaper delivery man. I found this phone on the ground next to a coffee vending machine near Hyapsang University. Are you the owner? The man on the line was indeed a newspaper delivery man named Mr. Kim. He had found Unji's phone on the ground while out for delivery at 5 a.m. that morning. He had waited until the end of his route to try and find the phone's owner. He discovered that the phone wasn't dead, but manually turned off. So when he turned it back on, he immediately got the parents' call. The police arrived with the family to search the area and talk to the delivery man. He had found the phone with no damage, no scratches, lying as if placed carefully on the ground below this coffee vending machine. The police questioned Mr. Kim, but he had a solid alibi for the evening prior. The location of the discovery of the phone was not covered by CCTV, and nobody suspicious had been seen in the area. They had to work under the presumption that it was possible Ungie had run away from home. That day, they would gotten a hold of the CCTV footage of her leaving the bus early and walking off seemingly without duress. She could have just discarded her phone so that nobody could track her. They didn't have much to work with, But the phone was found near Hyepsang University, which is four kilometers away from the swimming center in the opposite direction of her home. So after getting off of the bus, which was moving towards her house, she for some reason turned around, went back towards the swimming center, continued for 4 kilometers before deciding to abandon her phone. It was suspicious. The phone wasn't damaged, and the last text she had sent to was her mother. The last call she had made was to her brother. There were no outgoing calls or texts. Since then. If Unji had gotten off the bus to take a taxi, she hadn't told the taxi driver to take her to her house. The police were suspicious about her taking a taxi because there was a rare chance that she had gotten into a car of a person impersonating a taxi driver. Unji's father protested this though because he had taught her to look for the Gyeonggi number 57 sign, which marks a taxi as legal and from their district. It wasn't just something he said he told her to do, it was something that she was known to do. And it was suspicious that her phone was found so far away from home. So they decided to search the area that her phone was found for any further clues. After three hours of searching the area, one of the investigators believed they found something belonging to Unji. When she had left the house that day, she had been wearing white sneakers, blue jeans, a purple shirt, and a black zip-up hoodie. Her brothers were able to give a good description of her clothes, so when one of the fa- so when one of the officers found a purple shirt lying on the main road, one point six kilometers away from the location of her phone, they knew it must have belonged to Unji. The shirt was covered in a mucus-like liquid that the police privately assumed was seminal fluid. Her black zip-up hoodie was found in bushes near the shirt. The chief of police in Huasong mobilized all available officers to begin a search of the entire area. As the search broadened in the following hours, they discovered her jeans, two hundred meters down the road in the direction of her house, also covered in a sticky substance presumed to be seminal fluid. 800 meters further down the main road, away from the jeans, they found her bra tossed to the side of the road in the bushes. The clothing items were tossed, not placed, as if someone had driven down the road and thrown them from the passenger side window. South Korea drives on the right side of the road, same as North America, so the driver would have either needed to throw incredibly well to get the kind of distance they got, or have someone sitting in the passenger side seat assisting them. It was possible that someone had walked along the side of the road and thrown them, but there were no reports of someone walking along the unpaved side of the road. Not far from the bra, about 50 meters away, continuing south towards Unji's house, they found her white socks, balled up at the same side of the road. It was now 11 10 a.m., 40 minutes since they had found all of the discarded items of Unji's clothes on the side of the road. That's when they found her left shoe, about 200 meters away from the socks, continuing south down the road. But the items stopped when the road turned east and hit a four-way crossroad. With so many items found in a short period of time, they knew it was pertinent that they increased the number of people searching the area. Police from other districts came to join the search in the crucial 24 hours after she went missing. She had been missing for 14 hours at this point and Hope was fleeting for her safety. The police continued searching along the roads and also into the brush off of the road. Shortly later, her right shoe was discovered 400 meters away from the left shoe. The shoe was found continuing towards NG's house on the off-roads. At this point, the items were found almost in a straight line leading towards her family's house. The right shoe is only 700 meters away from their home, next to a small lake that was in a forested area. The investigators were becoming increasingly aware of the severity of this case. Detectives on the case with expertise in criminal profiling suggested that the items must have been purposely thrown in their location. As a trail towards their house to either mock the family or the police. They believed that the perpetrator of the kidnapping was trying to communicate Do you really think you can catch me? Five hours passed since the discovery of the cell phone. Unji's white undershirt and her cosmetic bag were discovered at 4 p.m. 19 hours had passed since she was expected to be home. Whoever placed these items did it very quickly after kidnapping her, and the police feared that she was already dead. As time went on, the search continued to grow and volunteers joined the search. Flyers were distributed citywide with Unji's face and a number to report any information. They used a recent picture of her with long black hair, short bangs, standing in front of the city's landscape. At the top of the flyer was a reward for any information that led to the police finding her. The reward was for Jeon Man won, or 10 million won, which is roughly 9,000 US dollars. The chief of police led a meeting each morning of the investigation to update the the detectives, and the public about the case. He made a public statement every day to update the public about what was happening in the investigation. Three days later, on October thirty-first, two 2004, at 12.30 p.m., the ground search revealed another item belonging to Unji. Her swimming cap and goggles were found in the brush alongside a small road leading to the lake near her family's house. Three hours later, they would find her gym bag and swimsuit on that same back road. Days had passed, and they hadn't found any new items that belonged to her, and her parents believed this to be all of the clothing and belongings that she had on her the day she left. The articles of clothing and items were given to the National Forensic Service to test for any substances or DNA that could bring them closer to finding out where she was. The liquid that was present on her clothes was tested for DNA, but the mucus that was left on her shirt was determined not to be human, but from a plant called clam grass that grows in dark, damp places like the shade of a forest. There were forests in the area of the lake that the last of her belongings were found, as well as mountains to the west. But clam grass doesn't grow very tall. It's a very short type of grass that would have been below Nji's knees. She didn't get the grass stains from walking. She would have needed to have been dragged or have fallen down on the grass. The search continued on the mountainous areas throughout the district, but nothing further was found that could have shown where she was when she got the grass stains on her shirt. During the days, Following the discovery of Unji's belongings, police were able to find eyewitnesses who had seen Unji the day of her disappearance. However, you'll see why this just complicated the investigation. None of the other passengers on the bus could provide any information about Unji, because none could recall seeing her or where she had gone after she got off the bus. A man named Mr. Sun, who owned a small store across the street from the bus stop, had known her face because her family purchased fruit at a store occasionally. He didn't know her name but he'd seen her a few times before, enough to recognize the picture of her. When the police questioned him about that night, he couldn't remember if he had seen her or not. He was sure that she hadn't stopped by the store, but he recalled seeing a girl that looked similar to her that evening outside. He didn't recognize the girl as Inji or the customer he'd seen before, but he said he did see a young woman sitting on a concrete pedestal next to the bus stop legs crossed with one leg swinging. He said this was sometime between 8.40 p.m. and 9 p.m. He recalled a car stopped by the bus stop that looked like a Deu Espero or a Kia Sepia, but he couldn't be sure. It didn't stand out as odd to him, just normal business of the downtown area. Another witness came forward who was in the area at the same time, a man who was driving with his friends, recalled seeing a woman with long, dark hair waiting for a taxi next to the bus stop. He put the time between 8.55 and 9.15 p.m. He then saw an RV pull up to the curb alongside the taxi's waiting area. These eyewitness testimonies don't contradict each other, but they don't bring the police any closer to finding Unji's location. Did she get in a taxi, a stranger's car, or was she abducted by a person in an RV? There is a lot more investigative work to do. The investigation team was desperate, and the police department was open to any and all methods to find out where ng was. Missing person cases like this didn't happen often and they were desperate to solve it quickly. This case had taken the entire nation's attention. It had been nine days since she went missing and they hadn't found anything new that led them to finding her location. On November 5th, the police department alongside the National Forensic Service conducted a hypnosis interview on a woman who got off the bus with ng and on the bus driver. Neither of the interviews produced anything beneficial to the case. The police began searching for the owners of cars and RVs that matched the descriptions that people had seen around that time. However, Engie's parents were still adamant she would not get into a stranger's car. She must have taken a taxi, and the taxi driver must have kidnapped her. It was at this time that the mucus found on her jeans was done being tested for evidence. Her jeans did contain stains from the clam grass. They also had seminal fluid. The sample was tested Against the National Criminal Database, as well as employees and students at the swimming center. When no matches were found, they brought in the search to over 4,600 taxi drivers and people who were in the area on the day of her disappearance. Over 2,000 taxis were searched for evidence, and the hotline was opened for any clues. With the overwhelming task they had taken on, the police department was lagging behind. They just didn't have the manpower, forensic staff, or space to do all of this work efficiently. The tip line got all types of calls that ultimately wasted their time. A man at my gym is working out suspiciously, or I've had a mark on my body since that girl went missing, or even a suspicious person has been seen in my neighborhood. Where are you? I'm in Busan. Busan is the southernmost part of South Korea. It's nowhere near Seoul. The family and police were losing hope to find Eunji as the days continued on. The chief of police was putting in the most effort he could while they were dealing with multiple active serial killers. During this time, Wasong was becoming known as the city of serial killers. Residents of this area stopped volunteering to help and many decided to just ignore the deaths as if they weren't happening. Prior to this incident, the Hwasong serial killer, that we now know as Ichin had allegedly killed 14 victims between 1986 and 1991. Eight of those victims were in Hwasong. Even with so much time since the last murder that occurred, people were afraid and reluctant to speak to the police. With no helpful information coming through the tip line and no more witnesses that could provide a more accurate timeline of the night Ng ji disappeared, the police decided to listen to some of the more unconventional tips that were left on the tip line. Mugyo shamans, fortune tellers, and other such spiritual leaders had called in and left messages on the tip line. One message said, I believe a body was abandoned in the lake in Sangyangli." Another message said, the missing student was kidnapped by two men and taken to a business room in Weijiangbu." I can sense a very strong negative energy. Business rooms, also known as room salons, are private rooms people can rent with bar service. They're a part of Korean culture that's often ignored and not discussed as they represent a dark heart of nightlife. Business rooms often have ties to sex trafficking, abusive work gatherings, and infidelity, but these tips ended up being worthless. On the morning of December 12th, a real estate agent was showing a man around Taebong Mountain in Wasong, not far from the small lake that NG's last item items were discovered. The man was looking to purchase land to build businesses on, and the area on the mountain was perfect to demolish the old dilapidated houses from a village that was long since abandoned. When surveying the area, the two men noticed a swarm of mice piled on a mound of dirt. The chewing sounds were loud enough to hear from far away. The real estate agent moved closer to see the odd situation, and the field mice ran away, revealing a body almost completely eaten by the mice to the bones. Unji's body was found on Taebong Mountain 46 days after her disappearance. The chief of police was questioned about how her body not even buried was found so easily by these two men but when the police searched the mountain they couldn't find it he had a very stern look on his face when he said you don't make the same mistake twice implying that the body wasn't there the multiple times they had searched it head of criminal psychology division at the national forensic service said that most murderers abandon the body of their victim in a location that they're familiar with and have visited meticulously in the past. They feel like they have some sort of control over whether the body is discovered or not. After Unji's body was taken by the forensics team, the police returned to the idea of the paranormal. They invited a Suwon University of Science and Technology professor and scholar of key mysticism to perform a ritual at the crime scene. At 11.40 a.m., Professor Kim stood near the location where Unji's body was found. He produced a small pendulum held on by a string wrapped around his hand. It held a a weight on the end that he said would point them towards the culprit. When interviewed, he said that he had prepared for two weeks prior to this. At this point, the police had already established the direction the murderer took to enter and exit the mountain, and the pendulum began to swing silently that way. After following the direction of the pendulum, the police and scholar found themselves at the Hwasong Welfare Center, where Unji took her swimming classes. Professor Kim told the police that he believed that this was telling him that the killer could be associated with her swimming classes or the PC room across the street. Suddenly, he announced that he had a vision of the killer. The killer had dark skin and was very skinny, but there was a second man, stocky, with a rough, set in expression on his face. The police did spend time investigating the PC bong, but had already gotten alibis for the workers and swimmers at the swimming center. While many people in Korea have some faith or interest in this kind of spiritualism, the police did face criticism for allowing Professor Kim on the investigative team. On December 13th, the following day, the autopsy was performed. Without going into disrespectful details, the body was not able to be identified without using dental records. Most of the damage done to the body was by wild animals. No wounds or trauma were found that appeared to be done by the killer. There were no signs of fractures to the thyroid cartilage or hyoid bone, but the forensic officer determined that the most likely cause of death was strangulation. On her stomach, she had small scrapes from being dragged on the ground. However, after further observation, the scientists were able to determine they occurred after she had died. There were no scratches on her back, chest, or sides, meaning she was Only dragged a very short distance, most likely from the car to the discovery location. It appeared someone had dragged her by holding her arms and legs in the air, with only her stomach touching the ground. They had confirmed that two perpetrators had to have been involved in the disposal of her body. Her time of death was determined quickly, as tokboki and gimbap pieces were still in her stomach. An image of who the criminals were became more clear for the investigators. They didn't bury her body or burn her things because they either needed to act quickly without drawing attention to themselves or they thought they wouldn't be caught. The perpetrators were most likely someone Eunji trusted enough to get into their car to drive her home. The second person in the car would have been able to throw her belongings out of the window of the small winding road down the mountain past the lake onto the main road towards where the phone was discarded. The police began to try to recreate the crime from the bus stop to the mountain. If her cell phone was the last thing placed, it would would have taken a total of 46 minutes from the time they left the mountain to the coffee vending machine they left the phone under. Using her time of death estimate, they then determined that from the time she got in the vehicle to the time they arrived to the mountain would have been an hour and a half, plus the 40 minutes it took to discard her items. They would have reached the coffee vending machine at approximately 11 p.m. This wasn't just an estimate they had hoped on. They had the full National Forensic Service and over 70 detectives recreating the scene, but unfortunately, there was no more progress made on her case, and Unji's belongings and her body were returned to her family to bury. And to this day, her case remains cold. It's been 18 years since Unjin lost her life. She would have been 38 years old now. There's no statute of limitations on murder cases in South Korea, so we hold out hope that someday the DNA left behind by one of the killers brings them to justice. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And before I go, make sure to check out Korean true crime on. Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can show some love by giving me a rating or review wherever you listen to. Make sure to follow the show so you can tune in next time. See you next time.